following program does not offer personal medical advice. Please consult your doctor before using any treatment or product we cover. Welcome to Go to Health Radio with your host, Jonathan Marks. We provide a welcoming environment where experts educate you on important health topics, answer your questions, and provide information from which you can benefit in consultation with your doctor. And now, here is Jonathan Marks. Hello, everybody. Great to be back with you this week with another show. And this week is what I call Professional Wednesday. Now, if you're not a medical professional, stay on because I think you're going to find this very interesting. But at the the last Wednesday of each month, I want to focus our content on for professionals. And today we're talking about writing readably about research. Barbara Gastel, MD, MPH, is our guest. And Barbara and I have been training the CDC, the U.S. Centers for Disease Control, for about seven years. And um, it's just fabulous information that Barbara has. And I think you'll find it very interesting. It's like coming into the back room to find out how medical communications is done. Barbara Gastel is a physician specializing in biomedical writing and editing. She's a professor of integrative biosciences, humanities and medicine, and biotechnology at Texas A&M University in College Station, Texas, where she coordinates the master's degree program in science and technology journalism. She's the author of three books, all on medical writing, and she has received awards from the American Medical Writers Association and the Council of Science Editors. She's a fellow of the American Association for the Advancement of Science. And in 2006, the board of editors in the life sciences named her an honored editor in the life sciences. She was also the 2010 recipient of the John P. McGovern Science and Society Award given by the Scientific Research Society, Sigma Psi. So I'm really proud to have Barbara with us. And again, she's going to be talking about writing readably for research. So Barbara, I will let you take this away right now. Thank you so much, Jonathan. It is wonderful to be here. And title is Writing Readably About Research, but I think even if you're not a researcher, there will be a lot that's applicable. A lot also um, applies, for example, to presenting medical content to patients. And sort of an overview of what we will be talking about, start out with a little background. I'll be presenting some general pointers for writing readably. Then talk specifically about preparing readable papers and proposals. Writing readably for general audiences. How to write readably for non-native users of English. And then talk about some resources. And if there's a little time for questions at the end, perhaps Jonathan can ask some questions. And having worked with Jonathan, before, I know he'll probably be asking some questions along the way. So really look forward to hearing what Jonathan has to ask and what he has to add. Thank you. <laughs> so a little about my background. I want to thank Jonathan for the lovely introduction. Um, I'm an MD and have a master's degree in public health. And as many of you know, with a medical degree, you can go so many directions. You can um, go into clinical care, you can go into research, administration. And for me, I had always loved writing and editing. And so my career focus really has been writing and editing in science and medicine. 
I'm professor at Texas A&M University, and as mentioned, I coordinate the science writing master's program. Also, one of my great interests is the international communication of science, and I was very lucky to teach in China for two years and to have had wonderful opportunities to give workshops in writing in about 20 countries. You can see why I brought Barbara on. Thank you. And as mentioned, I'm um, also book writing. In fact, one of my projects for this summer is to finish um, the manuscript for a new edition of the book, How to Write and Publish a Scientific Paper. And so um, one question might be, why bother writing readably about research? It's often a lot easier to just sort of say whatever you want to say. Don't worry about whether it's readable. But I think there are many reasons. One, simply it's considerate of other people. It's inconsiderate to make people work harder than they have to, to understand you. A considerate person makes it easy for the audience. Also, writing readably helps retain people's attention if something's too hard to understand, a lot of times people just put it down and don't continue. But if it's readable and people just feel like they're gliding through and getting the point, you know, then they want to stay with it. Obviously, it promotes understanding. If it's something's hard to read, it's really easy to misinterpret it or just for people not to get the message. And the flip side is it helps avoid misinterpretation. I mean, I have to say there have been times where I have said, well, you know, well, why didn't I understand what I was trying to say? And then I look back and I realize what I said was ambiguous or just too hard to plod through. I think it fosters acceptance. So whether you are writing a grant proposal or a journal article or patient information materials, if it's easy to read, it's probably more likely to be accepted. And I think it ultimately can save time. I mean, to me, it takes time to write readably. It means revising things for readability, but it often takes more time to deal with problems caused by misunderstanding. So mm -hmm. I'm writing readably the first time is really helpful. Barbara, can you just give us a, a, a quick opinion about how much in misinterpretation or misunderstanding is there of research publications? Right. Well, certainly I will see things misquoted or early on, one of the problems I see is, for example, when people send papers to journals and they want them published, as you know, Jonathan, they go out for peer review. So other, um, other experts in the field look over them, give feedback, yes. weigh in on whether they should be published. And so often I hear from people saying the peer reviewers didn't understand what I was saying. Mm -hmm. Reviewers said I never included this, but I included it. And I think it might be a problem for the peer, on the part of the peer reviewers, but often I think it means that the original writing wasn't clear. And Good. So the, the peer reviewers really do play an important role in, 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 you know, going through the details of a paper before it actually gets published. Absolutely. And the same thing for grant proposals. Um, they're peer reviewed and 
groups of fellow experts in the field basically weigh in on whether the research should be funded. Mm-hmm. And if, if a proposal is too hard to understand, they may basically just give up or get frustrated. Right. And a person may have a great research idea, but they won't get the funds. And to me, um, maybe not for everybody, writing readably can be enjoyable too. To me, it's almost like a game or a puzzle to take something that's kind of hard to understand and try to figure out a way to make it easy easy to understand. Mm -hmm. There's um, one of my favorite quotes and is um, is the following, and it's sort of adapted by, from Quintilian, and it's, do not merely write in a way that can be understood, write in a way that cannot be misunderstood. Very nice. Now, and, who's, who's Quintilian? Was he a Roman philosopher right, or I, writer? I, that, that, that's my understanding. Uh, okay. Probably should have um, this, um, had my notes include the dates. <laughs> And then I've heard other people since say similar things, but I think it's not enough so that, well, if you interpret this way, but it should be, you know, just so watertight. Right. So let me repeat that because it's so important. Do not merely write in a way that can be understood, write in a way that cannot be misunderstood. I love that. That's great. Glad, glad you like it too. That's one of my favorites. So why don't I move on to some general pointers for writing readably? And these will apply to almost anything you're writing. Um, The first one is to know your audience, because what will be clear and readable to one group may not be to another. So really analyze your audience, um, what they already know, what they care about, what their language level is, all those things. So can adapt things to the audience. And I think a lot of us um, have will adapt um, things to different audiences. One of the things I used to enjoy way back when I was working at the National Institutes of Health, we'd have sometimes have a subject matter and we'd have materials both for health professionals and for members of the public. And it was mm-hmm. really fun to adapt them to the different audiences. Another thing that makes things readable is to use the structure that your audience expects. For example, if it's a um, a scientific paper in a journal, readers expect it to be introduction, method, results, and discussion, what some people call the IMRAD structure. And so if you use that, then people can read it more easily than if it's some kind of unexpected structure. Or if you're writing a newspaper article, most people expect in a newspaper article that the main point will be at the beginning and then there'll be details. And so writing in that way, if you plan to people's expectations, it's easier for them to process and read. Got it. Another thing is to make the structure of your writing visible so that at a glance, people can see what the plan is and what they can find where. So subheadings can really help. That way people see what's where and they can focus on what they want. Numbered lists or bulleted lists often make things a lot easier to read than having, let's say, long lists in a paragraph. 
Also, white space. Um, I think people with a design background realize white space is a really important design element. So, for example, if you skip space between things or have big enough margins, it makes, makes things easier to read. And I just wanted to make a comment here about subheadings, Barbara, because I think they're so important. When somebody reads a longer article, they may not read the whole thing, but they may just be guided by the subheadings and may just skim those subheadings. They may skim your whole paper just reading the subheadings to get a feel for what you're writing about and then go back and read the parts that they want. So subheadings are really like a compass for, for you know, understanding and reading a, a longer piece of writing. Exactly. And so often when people show me drafts, I will suggest that they insert some subheadings to help guide the audience. Another thing, um, sort of along the same line, is to avoid really long paragraphs. I think people tend to get lost in long paragraphs or even just looking at a page or a screen that has a really long paragraph. It's intimidating and people don't even want to start reading. A similar thing is avoiding really complex or really long sentences. Again, readers tend to get tangled up. And I find a lot in my drafts, the sentences are too long and too complex. Mm. Drafts, there'll be a sentence with parentheses, within parentheses, within parentheses. And then when I go back and polish it up, I have to untangle it and say, okay, one main idea per sentence. And what had before maybe been one sentence might turn into two or three or even four sentences. So I just want to make this point. You are an awarded writer. You're an awarded editor. But you're saying still that you don't write as clearly as you could the first time. You have to go back and review your drafts and and work it down. Absolutely. I mean, in my view, um, good writing is basically the product of good revision that Mm -hmm. Almost every good writer I know revises um, revises their work, and that's it's just part part of part of the process. Yeah, quoting another great writer, I, I love the Mark Twain quote: "I would have written you a shorter letter, but I didn't have the time." Exactly. So revising is really. I think really important. And in a way, it can set people's minds at ease because you can relax on your first draft. Mm. It doesn't matter if the first draft is not publishable or shareable, as long as you go back and revise it. Another pointer for readability is in sentences to place related content close together. I mean, sometimes people, let's say, will write a sentence with the subject and then all this other stuff and then the verb three lines later and readers, readers get lost. So if there are ideas that go together, put, put the ideas close together. Another thing that can be really helpful in orienting the readers to make things readable is before you present details, present overviews so people know what you're talking about and where you're going. So for example, put a good title on your piece. If you're writing something that has an abstract, really pay attention to having a good abstract to orient your readers. Or in, um, in, um, in a paragraph, use a strong topic sentence that sort of summarizes, start with a sentence, in other words, that summarizes the main point of the paragraph. You know, for example, there are three reasons for such and such. 
And then people know, okay, we're talking about the reasons, and then I'm going to give you three. Barbara, you mentioned abstracts a minute ago. Can you just briefly, we just, we're almost at a break, but can, can you briefly explain what an abstract is? Absolutely. An abstract is basically like a summary. It's like a miniature version. Remember a moment ago, I said scientific papers, introduction, methods, results, and discussion. An abstract often is only about 200 to 300 words, and it often have will have like an introductory sentence or two, maybe mm-hmm. a couple sentences about the method used in the research, a um, couple sentences about the main results, and maybe a sentence of conclusions. So it's like a miniature version of what you're writing and sort of like a summary. Right. So if any of you are doing health research online, and I know a lot of people do, um, if you go to scholarly articles, they will frequently have an abstract, which gives you, as Barbara said, a summary of what's being written. And then if you're interested in that paper, you can go in and read the full paper. But abstracts are really the way into scientific writing and often what you'll see first. Absolutely. I think, for example, if you're doing a PubMed um, search, um, you'll be able to access very easily the title and author and abstracts and read the abstracts. And by reading the abstract, you can decide whether you are interested in reading the full article. Right. Good. So if, if, if this is of interest to you, I know you're listening on radio now, but we're also recording this in video and you can watch the video and look at the slides that Barbara is presenting when you come to our website at gotohealthmedia.com and then click the video link. So it's gotohealthmedia.com slash videos and you'll be able to see the slides that Barbara is presenting. It will make more sense to you. And of course, repetition is a wonderful thing. You take in more information when you watch it again. So you can actually watch and read and, and listen to us talk in the replay, which I'll be putting up shortly after this webinar. But I do in, uh, encourage you, uh, I'm sorry, not webinar, but this, this radio show, but I do encourage you to check out our videos because you can see our presenters and what they are presenting. So we, we're gonna take a break shortly, but we will be back. We're talking with Dr. Barbara Gastel, MD, MPH. She's at Texas A&M University and she's teaching us about readable writing. We'll be back with more after this break. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues. This show addresses topics as varied as marital stress, insomnia, depression, raising teens, campus violence, and building self-resilience. Listen in as Dr. Phillips and her guest experts share the latest in books, findings, and information that will inform and enhance your life journey. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on The Voice America Variety Channel. Tune in to The Patricia Raskin Show on VoiceAmerica.com every Monday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time. This is the program that helps you turn obstacles into opportunities, challenges into solutions, and find answers to tough questions with the award-winning powerhouse voice of radio, Patricia Raskin. So tune in and call in to The Patricia Raskin Show, Mondays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time, right here on the Voice America Variety Channel. Voice America presents a new kind of health awareness talk show, the Sharon Kleiner Hour, Health, Environment, and the Power of Water. 
Show host Sharon Kleiner interviews leading scientists to discover how each of us can become proactive in protecting our personal health environment in an increasingly unhealthy world. Every show offers new information that could save your life. The Sharon Kleiner Hour is health from an environmental perspective. Your ultimate source for a personal environmental lifestyle. Listen Mondays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel and Wednesdays at 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to Go to Health Radio. To reach Jonathan Marks or his guest expert on the live program, call in to 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. You may also send an email to Jonathan Marks at gotohealthmedia.com. Now, back to this week's show. All righty. Thanks for being here with us again and glad you're back. We're talking with Barbara Gastel, MD, MPH. She's at Texas A&M University, and she teaches writing. And today we're talking about writing readably. So, Barbara, I'm going to turn it back to you to continue. Well, thank you so much. As you may recall, we were going through some general pointers for writing readably. And let me go through a few more. Another one is where feasible, use simple common terms. Clearly, there are times when you need to use the proper technical term. But for everyday things, just use um, simple terms. Even in a a paper um, for a journal, when you can, use the simple term. You don't have to say attempt. You can say try. You don't have to say demonstrate. You can say show. Just use the simple common terms. If there are some terms that may be unclear to readers, of course, remember to define them. Another thing for writing readably is removing clutter because there's clutter that gets in the way of understanding. For example, if there's some content that's tangential that doesn't really relate, take it out. If you have needless words, take them out. Let's say saying something's red in color, just say it's red. Condense wordy phrases instead of saying at this point in time, you can say now. And also, if you have graphics, simplify them if you can do so and if it's appropriate. Also, another thing is avoid excessive use of acronyms. In other words, abbreviations. Mm -hmm. Um, You can, depending on your audience, you may be able to use well-known ones talking about DNA or NIH or something like that. But a lot of us, um, clinically, we are used to using all kinds of um, acronyms. And sometimes you forget. I know I m- recently said to a member of the family, oh, I think they'll need an NG too. And I said, what? What are you talking about? So, um, so um, be- be- beware of using a lot of acronyms. And Um, Also, where appropriate, use graphics as well as text. Um, A lot of people learn visually, process visually, so graphics can be helpful, but keep keep them uncluttered and label them enough. Remember to label what's in them. And ideally, 
should have a good enough labeling, good enough caption so that readers can understand the graphics without reading the main text of the piece. Right. So they're really standalone. Right. So it should stand alone. Also, a couple more points. Often it's helpful to check with sample audience members, you know, try to check their understanding. If it's something formal, maybe even have focus groups, otherwise do something informal. And then in keeping with what we were saying before, revise, revise, revise. Readable writing usually is much revised writing. Yeah, sure. I just wanted to share a brief example. Um, a friend of mine just came to me with a brochure that she was putting together for a medical procedure. And um, she wanted me to take a look at it because she knows I'm, I'm familiar with medical writing. And it, we had a great discussion about it because unconsciously she had a lot of terms in there that she was familiar with, but the general public wouldn't be. And so it was really an exercise in explaining the terms first and then using the acronyms or just or simplifying the language. It was a very good exercise for both of us, um, for, you know, for me to see how much jargon can be in a, a simple brochure that's meant for patients, but you really have to make it readable and understandable for the common public. So it was a, it was a great exercise for both of us. Great example. Let me now talk a little bit about applying some of this to re writing readable papers and proposals. Um, so, of course, follow the general tips. Um, in keeping with what we're saying, provide an accurate, concise title. I find I have to work on titles a lot. I'll often draft the title, write the piece, and then come back and revise the title. And I would say devote particular care to things that provide overviews because they help orient your audience. So again, we were talking about abstracts. Make sure it's a really good abstract. Um, from some journal articles now include key points lists. And for busy clinicians, that's often main thing they may be reading. So you know, work really hard on making your key points list really clear and readable. Or if you're writing, let's say, an a proposal for the National Institutes of Health. The specific aim section really provides an overview and orients people. And so if you can write that really readably, it can really put you ahead. And if you're allowed, make plenty of use of subheads. For example, if I'm reading the methods section of a journal article, I really like it if it's broken up with subheads because then it's very easy to follow along. Um, in general, in writing papers and proposals, usually active voice works better, but sometimes um, passive voice can be fine. For example, if it's a talking about a method, it's not important who who's going to use the method. Can you give us an example of active versus passive voice, Barbara? Right. Um, let's use from a method section. Um, active voice would be, I stained the gels. Passive voice is the gels were stained by me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Got it. So you really want to have some action in there. Right, some action. And it's Got it. more concise, more direct. But um, again, sometimes it doesn't matter who did it. So you may be able to just say the gels were then stained. Mm -hmm. um, if appropriate, use italics or boldface for new terms. Is that helps emphasize them. And also that way, if people are looking for them, looking for the definitions, it can be helpful. Even consider including a table of abbreviations. 
Some, um, some journals regularly include a table of abbreviations for each paper, or I know there was a grant proposal I was editing that had a lot of acronyms and abbreviations. And so one thing I did was prepared a table of abbreviations so that the reviewers could consult it easily. Another big thing I think is to cite tables and figures as soon as readers might want to look at them because that way they know what to look at when it can help orient them rather than they're trying to visualize something and then realizing later, oh, there's a figure. I could have just looked at this graph. A similar thing is to place references immediately after what they refer to. So it's clear what they refer to. I think sometimes when I work with students, they make the mistake of putting all the references at the end of the paragraph. Mm. No, which which statement goes with which reference. Another thing is a related thing is to respond readably to reviewers and editors. So let's say um, you um, submit a paper to a journal and let's say you get it back and it says we're, we're um, basically interested in your paper, but um, we would you know, like you to make these following revisions. Um, if you know, you're more likely to get that final acceptance if you respond respectfully and readably, and it's clear what you, you know, how you address, um, let's say the difficulties. So again, reply point to point. Often a journal will send a numbered list of requested revisions. So reply, you know, your own numbered list, um, reply um, to each one. And um, one thing that can be really helpful in journals often request is to clearly identify the revisions you made. For example, you could use highlighting or use track changes in words. So they really see what, what changes you made. And I just just today had an example of that. There was a paper I reviewed several months ago, and I was one of the peer reviewers. We sent it, um, the paper, um, the journal decided after getting a peer reviews that it had potential, but was not really publishable as is. So they sent a list of lots of suggestions to the, the authors. They resubmitted it. We were asked to peer review it again, and they had really you know, addressed our changes. They've made almost all the requested changes. And the ones they didn't make, they explained why they didn't make it. They had good reasons and just just received word today that the journal had, had accepted that paper. Congratulations. And I, I know that can be a lot of work. <laughs> right. So it's, you know, our real congratulations to the authors because I they had really put in the work and they got the paper accepted. So that was that was a nice thing. But how about writing readably for general audiences? Let's let's move to some points in in that regard. Of course, again, follow the general tips. And I would say analyze the specific audience that, you know, I think too often people say this is for the public. But the public has so many subgroups with different interests, different demographics, different reading levels. So I think really knowing what what audience you are trying to target is, is really important. And not only knowing that audience, but what are their fears? What are their concerns? What are they, you know, what are they interested in? 
you can't write for the for the whole world. You're writing for a, try to imagine the audience in your mind. Who are you writing for, and what is it they need to hear? What are they going to be interested? What are they concerned about? What's going to motivate them? So you really need Thanks. to think about that before you do your writing. Excellent, thank you, Jonathan. Another thing that can be helpful for um, writing for general audiences and getting your writing read is to provide what's known as points of entry. In other words, multiple things that draw the reader in. Mm -hmm. Um, One would be a title. Is it a title that will make people want to read it, either just because it's informative and something people care about or because it just sounds like a really interesting title? Also, often under the title, there's like a short sentence that says a little more. It's sometimes called a blurb or a deck. You can have that. That can help draw people in. Another thing that can draw people in are sidebars. In other words, short articles accompanying the main article. Sometimes people, maybe at least to start with, don't want to tackle a long article, but they see this this little thing that has some interesting facts or something. So, Um, The sidebars will draw people in. Mm -hmm. Another thing in writing is what's known as pull quotes. Maybe people have seen it, let's say, when they read a magazine article. There's maybe a statement from the article, and it's set in larger type. And often those are chosen to be really interesting or intriguing. And so people see that, and they think, oh, want to read the whole article and see why they're saying that. And then certainly photos and other graphics can draw people in and choosing them well can be really important. Another thing that I think is really important in writing for general audiences is in general, provide human interest. In other words, include people, not just abstract um, concepts, but people involved in things or how what you're talking about will actually affect people. And I think in writing about research, especially medical research, there are so many ways to include people. Tell the story about the researcher. Well, how did they get interested in? What what struggles do they have in doing the research? How did they feel when they actually had the finding? What are they going to do next? So I'm talking about the researchers, certainly clinicians, physicians, and other health professionals, include them in the story. And also other professionals in public health and in medicine. Definitely include members of the public in this um, story, patients, and also people who are trying to stay well and trying to avoid becoming patients. Talk about them. Family members or, or friends. Um, health policymakers can be very important to include in this story. And other people involved, I, I remember a um, story in which, for which I interviewed a, a bioethicist. So inc- include people. And something that's related to including people, and I, I think I gave just implicitly an example, is use narrative, use some storytelling. Um, that, um, that it's kind of boring just if it's something's a list of facts, but if it can be woven into a story, it's engaging and it's memorable. And sometimes um, 
the the, um, piece as a whole can be a story. And other times, maybe it's a more a fact-based piece, but you can use little stories. In other words, anecdotes to support specific points or to enliven the text. Another thing helpful is to include concrete examples. In fact, just the other day, I was reviewing a chapter someone wrote and they had an important but very abstract statement. And I said, I um, said, how about adding an example or two of that? I think people grasp it better if you can give us an example. And another important thing is to relate unfamiliar things to familiar things. Um, this ties in with knowing, knowing your audience. And if you know what your audience already knows and already cares about, you, you can build on that scaffolding and, and sort of link what you do. And so analogies can be really important. Um, and one that I remember reading in an article some years back that I thought worked really well. They were talking about, I think it was how the um, hypothalamus had um, controls temperature. And it said, it's like a thermostat. And I think most of us have adjusted thermostats. And I thought, wow, what, what a good analogy. Right. And again, I think the analogy should be appropriate to the audience. So if it's a football analogy, that'll be appropriate to some. If it's a, you know, a sports analogy to others, cooking, whatever. So make it appropriate for the audience. We're just coming up on a break here shortly. But one of the things I wanted to emphasize here, Barbara has given us an incredible list of, of uh, advice here in terms of writing readably. What I suggest you do when the next time you pick up an article or a newspaper and you like it, note the points that Barbara has mentioned that you enjoy about that article and make a note of it because that you can include those techniques in your writing and it will really help you with your writing, whether you're writing to a family member or you're writing a scientific paper or an essay or a school, uh, school um, you know, project. Just keep these points in mind. And I just want to remind everybody before we go to break that we're recording this in video and you can view the video of this with the slides. And I'm also going to make the slides downloadable for you. So if you really want to take this home and learn it, uh, you can. And you can get that at uh, gotohealthmedia.com slash video. gotohealthmedia.com slash video. So we'll be back after this break. And Barbara will have even more for us. Thanks for listening. Stay with us. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Today, many doctors prescribe basic pharmaceuticals to their patients who aren't feeling well or have various aches or pains. Is this the right course of action for all patients? Definitely not. Find out about healthy, natural ways to help you feel your best by tuning into the CBD Ed Show with host Edward Cheney. Ed will explain full-spectrum CBD, where the whole hemp plant can be used for treatment, and answer all of your questions about CBD and natural treatment in general. Listen Fridays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time 2 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Variety. In the spirit of Have Couch Will Travel, Dr. Carol Lieberman creates a haven of sanity in an increasingly insane world. Each day we are bombarded with news of events that have never crossed our wildest nightmares. Society is spiraling out of control and everyone is reeling from it. But now there's an answer. 
The best way to keep sane in this insane world is to tune in to Dr. Carol's Couch on Voice America. Dr. Carol, a certified media psychiatrist, will broadcast live from her Beverly Hills office every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Pacific time. Call or log in and get help with whatever is sending you reeling whenever you need a soothing voice to calm and advise you. That's Dr. Carol's Couch every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Pacific time here on America's Voice, voiceamerica.com. Want an insider's pass to everything that goes on in Hollywood? Join Summer Helene every week for Behind the Scenes. Summer Helene is known as the Duchess of Hollywood because she knows the insiders, legends, and celebs and brings the stories, the gossip, and the backstage scoop. It's the real Hollywood, though. So this program is for adults only. Behind the Scenes can be heard live every Friday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time and 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to Go to Health Radio. To reach Jonathan Marks or his guest expert on the live program, Call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to Jonathan Marks at gotohealthmedia.com. Now, back to this week's show. All right. Thanks for being with us. And again, we're with Dr. Barbara Gastel, MD, MPH. She runs the uh, writing program at Texas A&M University in science writing. And we're talking about writing readably, whether you're writing for science or to your cousin or your mother, whatever. These are great tips for writing readably. So go ahead, Barbara, continue. Thanks very much, Jonathan. So we're now in the midst of talking about writing readably for general audiences. And the next point that I'm making is to limit the use of specialized technical terms or jargon. But I notice I said limit, not eliminate or avoid, because some terms can be helpful, for example, for patients to know. I know um, the JAMA patient page from the Journal of the American Medical Association, they originally tried to avoid all specialized terms, but then in focus groups, they learned that some people wanted to learn some of the specialized terms because their doctors use them. So now they start, they view, use sort of a, a mix and then are just careful to, to define the specialized terms. And a really neat way to introduce new terms without um, scaring people off is to use the concept before the term. Um, For example, if you just say the name, maybe an unfamiliar name of a medication, people might think, am I supposed to know what that is? But, um, you know, if you say we used a medication that does such and such, this medication is called such and such, then it's not intimidating and there's a framework for understanding. Um, make relationships between ideas clear. And one good way is with transitions like first, second, third, or however, or in addition. And one way to do it is, you know, using transitions like that. And another way is by presenting the steps in your reasoning. Because if you're an expert, you may be able to jump from just some evidence to some conclusion but for someone who's not an expert, need to walk them through. Well, mm-hmm. I would this evidence lead to this conclusion? Another thing is to present numbers and sizes effectively. 
And this includes using units that um, are familiar to people. For example, a lot of us working in science are used to using the metric system, but much of the American public isn't. So if you're writing for the American public, often converting things to English units or for sizes, sometimes it's hard to envision. Let's say you're talking about some kind of unfamiliar animal and you say it's so many, so many um, inches long and so many, so many pounds. Still hard to envision, but... If you say maybe it's the size of a small cat, well, mm-hmm. probably tell more or less what size it is. So familiar use units and comparing sizes to those of familiar objects. Another thing is respectfully countering misconceptions. There's a technique called the transformative explanation. And that is rather than saying, oh, no, 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 that doesn't make any sense. Science doesn't support it. Mm-hmm. It's like saying, well, you know, I, I understand why you think that way. You know, it may stand to reason for this. You know, however, you know, there is some newer evidence that such and such. And so, you know, perhaps consider, you know, this, this looking at this other way. Another thing is checking the pacing. So, for example, not rushing through too fast, not presenting too many hard ideas at once. So the distribution of difficult content, if there are some hard concepts, don't present all of them, let's say in the same paragraph, have some hard content and then maybe support it with, you know, an anecdote and some examples and then the next hard thing. So pace it out and also pace out the fun things or interesting things. The analogy I use is a good chocolate chip cookie. There's at least one chocolate chip in every bite. And similarly, a good article for the public each, each section has at least one, you know, sort of fun or cool or interesting thing in it that makes people want to take that next bite. Uh, that's a lovely analogy. I really like that one. Glad you like it. And then um, to note sources of further information, because with luck, what you said will interest people and they'll want to know more. So I think it, just as I will do at the end, I will um, note sources of further information, both online and ideally some other sources, because some audiences may not have good online access. I'd like to say a few words about writing readably for non-native users of English. Some preliminary notes. Basically, these days, nearly all writing about research is audiences that include non-native users of English, both in the United States, we're you know, a multicultural, multilingual society. Plus, for example, if your material's on the web, there are going to be probably people worldwide who are looking at it. Mm-hmm. So I think it's always helpful to keep in mind that not everybody reading things will be an, a native user. And um, there are basically um, two approaches to writing for audiences that have many non-native users of English. One is called globalization. And that means writing in a way that would be clear to anybody, no matter what their native language and no matter what their culture. So it's basically writing in a very neutral way. Mm -hmm. The other is called localization which is used when readers all have the same native language. And so you're gearing what you're writing to their culture and their linguistic um, background. So if I'm writing, let's say I'm writing a fact sheet, um, 
And, you know, and I want a local, if I want to globalize it, it will be in a way people everywhere can understand, relate to localization. I might have the Chinese version that's written in a way specifically geared to be culturally relevant and linguistically relevant to Chinese readers. But then I might have a Spanish version and I might have the Mexican Spanish version and the Spain Spanish version mm-hmm. and, and so forth. So two, two choices. But some general tips, um, um, one is to know that conventions for structuring documents may differ. For example, in the United States, um, we address um, envelopes starting with the person's name and the street address in their city. In some other countries, they address um, envelopes. It starts with their their city and then their street address and their name, which sense because that's how mail is sorted. Right. You know, and similarly, letters in different countries sometimes are structured differently. So sometimes know that. Know also that visual conventions may differ. For example, a color may have different meanings in different um, cultures. And also that there are cultural differences in directness of expression. That, For example, in the United States, we tend to be quite direct. And in some other countries, um, people tend to be much more indirect and sort of work up to the point or talk around the point. Um, Another thing is avoiding cultural references that may be unclear. And this, for example, happens with sports references. I mean, in the United States, we often use images from American football, but many countries, they're not familiar with American football. So... Or, you know, we may make Shakespeare allusions, but in some countries, Shakespeare is not commonly read. So being careful about cultural references. I would say also, if you're writing for people in another language, another culture, beware of using humor or irony because the humor may be lost or people may take it literally or they just may be confused or even find what you're doing offensive. So I'd be you know, really careful about um, trying to use humor unless you sort of know what kind of humor is appropriate for the audience. And another thing um, is to avoid um, idioms that may be unclear. Sometimes there are sayings and they're common sayings in the United States, but if they are taken literally, they don't make sense. So trying to try to put things, um, this is, one of my students gave an example today, and this is sort of like an idiom. She said, um, we talk about falling asleep, but someone from another, you know, who doesn't know English well may wonder um, why, you know, why are they falling? <laughs> right. Another thing is for readability by people who maybe, you know, do not have an advanced English level, use largely a simple um, sentence structure. So usually subject, verb, object, that makes it easier to to read. And similarly, simple verb forms. I mean, in English, some forms of verbs are really confusing. So if you can do your sort of simple present and past and future, not much more than that Mm -hmm. can make it easier for non-native users. Also, to guide readers, use plenty of punctuation because that way you can sort of see how things fit together. 
Another thing is to try to avoid terms that have multiple meanings. Some, there are some words that have different meanings in different contexts, and they can be confusing. So if you can choose to use words that have one specific denotation, that can help. Another thing is, I mean, usually I say write the short way, write the concise way, but sometimes the longer way is clearer, and clarity is is most important. So if the longer way is clearer, use it. Here's an example. Rather than saying this, for example, just say the survey that they conducted rather than the survey they conducted. Because mm. The word that in it makes clearer how the ideas fit together if someone maybe is not used to reading English. Also include units of measure that are familiar to the audience, you know, know what um, forms of measure are used. Also be sure to write dates in the way that will be interpreted consistently. So for example, if I'm talking about May 3rd, 2021, if I write three May, 2021, that should be clear to everybody. But if I write five, three, 21, in some countries, that means May 3rd. In other countries, it means March 5th. So mm. it can be very confusing. And I know one person in such an instance who ended up actually arriving at the airport on the wrong day. The wrong day. Right. Um, you know, something like that. So, so, Barbara, we just have a couple of minutes. I know you wanted to share some references, resources for people. So I think we should move to that. And we just have like a minute I think, or Yeah, two. I think I have just one or two more points on this. Um, um, Non-native users, perhaps try to choose terms that readers can easily pronounce. They can more easily process them mentally, and if feasible, pilot test the materials with members of your target language group. And so if they read it and you see everybody suddenly blushing and giggling, sort of realize, well, maybe. So um, pilot testing. So I am right up talking to the resources. I think this is good timing. And here are a few basic resources on writing readably. And I'm glad that um, Jonathan is going to be making these slides available because they're that way, if you want to see what, what these are, and I have links to most of them, I think many people are familiar with sort of the classic book, The Elements of Style by Strunk and White, just a short little book on how to basically write readably. And the first edition is totally openly accessible. Um, and so I have a link for that. There's also a book I like called The Elements of International English Style. It's about how to write for people in various countries. Another favorite is called Guidelines for Document Designers. And that's how both to do writing and page design and such so that um, documents are really clear and easy to read. And it's a real classic and is available online. Great. And so we, ha we have to cut now, but uh, just the last one that I know Barbara's going to talk about is plainlanguage.gov. I want to thank Barbara so much for being here today and sharing her expertise with us. You'll be able to watch this again at go to healthmedia.com slash video. 
And um, you can watch this online. You can download the slide deck. And thanks, Barbara, so much for being with us for this session. It's been a wonderful one. And we will see you again next week on Go to Health Media. And again, go to healthmedia.com slash videos, and you can watch the videos we've just created as well as listen again. Thanks so much, Barbara. Take care. My pleasure. And I do recommend plainlanguage.gov. Thank you. Thank you, everybody, for being here today. We'll see you again next week. Thank you for tuning in this week to Go to Health Radio. Be sure to join Jonathan Marks and another health expert next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time and 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. You can also catch the program on your favorite podcast platform. Until our next show, be sure to visit us on the web at gotohealthmedia.com and elevate your life.